I know a lot of people, myself included, though I, I dip in and out, out of it, but you know, that distill period, that's their favorite period of the white stripes. It's kind of like they were able to see a snapshot of this band on the ascent, but kind of like still retaining their their innocence, but also on their on their patch. And um, as Jack said, it's like going to these new places you haven't played before. You're able to create this energy and synergy with it with a with a local crowd who haven't seen you because it's it's new to the performer and it's new to them. I'm actually using the megaphone that Jack used. In the last bonus episode from season two, you heard Ben Blackwell tell a few more stories from the White Stripes' very first West Coast tour in 2000. Now we have two more bonus episodes left. On the next one, you're going to hear about the time that Weezer literally stole the show from the White Stripes. But this time around, we've got some more stuff from John Baker about their tour of Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. John had a whole lot of anecdotes and asides that I tried to fit into the last episode of season two, which was all about that tour. There was just so much of it. That's why we have this here with a few more of those uh, little tidbits from John Baker, who organized the White Stripes' very first tour overseas on this bonus episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. The air tickets for Jack and Meg cost 2,700 New Zealand dollars. That was for both of them. And that's, on today's exchange rate, that's about 1,450 US dollars. So looking back, it was, it, it, was a, it was a total bargain. But with what I've just said, when you had to do the shows, you had to pay for the PA, pay for the sound man. But the other important thing, you had to get people through the door and, and what you had to get right was you had to get songs on the radio. Check was able to do that with BFM and other college radio stations. You had to get the poster right because the poster's kind of like the, the first step of the show. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the invitation to the show and it kind of whets people's appetites, so to speak. And, and um, Jack had sent me these great press shots which were used for a poster. And if you're ever able to see them, you know, there's a fantastic shot of Meg in her, in her bare feet and there's Jack in a white t-shirt with his, with his fringe hanging over his eyes, holding his airline. And we used the, the font from the first White Stripes album. And, and of course we had in, in, in red and white with all the dates. So um, I was hoping, and I'm sure it did, and, and in hindsight, you know, totally piqued people's curiosity about the show. And then obviously, you have to try and get whatever publicity you can. And, you know, we got the TV on board, we got local newspapers on board, radio. And then more important, and like this was before the internet, really hit hard here was, was basically getting word of mouth. You put all those parts together and then you put the white stripes in there. Uh, to me, it was gonna, it wasn't, it wasn't gonna, it was gonna work. It wasn't gonna fail. And everyone was just involved, was flying by the seat of their pants. Me especially, 
my friends that were helping me, and the, and the band, because no one knew what was going to happen. I mean, call it the folly of youth. Actually, there's one more thing I want to tell you. Uh, I forgot on the Monday night when uh, of the of the day that the band arrived. A thing that I like to do commonly, and I still do it with bands, is I like to show them unique parts of Auckland, different flavors, different types of people, um, local geography, you know, local customs. So on that night. With Amber at the helm, she took us over to a place, what we call the North Shore, to a place called Devonport, which, um, and actually part of Devonport is called North Head, and it's these old army fortifications from World War II when um, uh, we were most concerned about the, the Yellow Peril and also um, guarding the entrance to our harbour. So... Um, the Army and the Air Force had a base in there, and it's this huge maze of tunnels that go into a side of a, of a mountain. And, and um, they're now closed up, obviously, for safety reasons, but in, in, in 2000, you could kind of walk in there, push past a gate, and go through these tunnels, and you had to take matches or candles or torches. And I remember after our dinner that night, we took Jack and Meg up there and we had, had to run through these tunnels in the dark and it's quite exhilarating. And I remember we ended up on, on one side of the hill, kind of on this on this cliff face and we managed to negotiate it and, and, and got back through. And um, that week is also in New Zealand is uh, what we call Guy Fawkes uh, week. And Guy Fawkes Day is November the 5th and that's where we observe as, as one anarcho-punk said to me once, the only honest man ever to enter English politics. So Guy Fawkes uh, tried to blow up Parliament with all this dynamite, but um, uh, he was thwarted, and now we observe that with, with this day called Guy Fawkes where we basically let off Roman candles, bangers, and what have you. So there were fireworks around, and I remember we took some fireworks up there I think I did because I love fireworks and um, and I think we lit some in the tunnels and, uh, you know, they sounded pretty loud uh, from, from memory. And my friend Anna, who came with us, was telling me that, that Meg was quite scared at the time because, you know, it's dark, tunnels, and, you know, she's only arrived in this country on the other side of the planet just that morning with, you know, with a bunch of people she doesn't know. The Wednesday of that week, we didn't have a show booked, but we had a session at Corduroy Records. Now, Corduroy Records was run by this total character by the name of, of Nick Phillips, a man who um, who loves Mike Stacks from Ugly Things. Uh, he loves mid-60s R&B, and also he's got his own fantastic band called The Breadmakers, and in the 
late 90s, early 2000s, he had this group called Shutdown 66, which basically they played kind of like back from the grave type garage rock. Anyway, Nick, an incredibly resourceful and charming man, had put together a pressing plant from, we're talking about a record pressing plant, and he had no previous experience in doing it, but he found a press, he found people to do the metal work, and he also found people to cut the lacquers to make the metal work. And then there are, he twigged on that, oh, if there are tour, touring bands here, I can get them in and we can do a direct to acetate recording, you know, to release on a on a on a seven inch. You know, hopefully we're able to release it at the same time the band are here. But you know, um, I, I don't think that was that was possible at that stage. Nick had approached me, and when I told Jack about, you know, this offer's been made, he totally jumped on it and embraced it. I was like, great, this was, you know, um, this was something that was going to drive them for that day. I was like, you know, we're going to record at Corduroy direct to acetate. There was little preparation, and I remember we went there in the afternoon because obviously Corduroy had been doing whatever they do during the day, probably pressing records, having a few beers, pressing a few more records, and, and probably recovering from their hangovers from the night before. So the band go in there and set up, and they decide that they're going to do, obviously there's two songs for a seven inch, they're going to do I Just Don't Know What To Do With Myself, and they're going to do a Headcote song, um, You're Right, I'm Wrong. The engineer that's cutting the lacquers is a guy by the name of Harry Williamson, and uh, Harry had had quite a bit of experience in the, in the UK before he came to Australia or working with progressive rock bands and um, and creating stages for for festivals in the early 70s almost came from a prog rock background but um he was an, he was an old, older gentleman and it was quite clear he, he kind of knew what he was doing and kind of knew what he wanted Jack knew what he was doing and Jack knew what he wanted too but both songs were recorded were recorded but Jack couldn't quite get what he wanted to achieve and this created quite a bit of friction between him and Harry, so much so that eventually, after a few attempts, there might have even been a complaint about, I'm going to cut another lacquer or something, that the recording session was abandoned. And I think, and to be fair, I think Harry kind of threw his toys out and Jack did the same too. And... They were not seen eye to eye. Subsequently, the acetate or the live to air session never came out. And I know that, um, you know, for many years afterwards, Nick was chased, corduroy wound down, um, 
un, under a cloud of uh, espionage and, and 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 mystery, and the the presses were sold, and and uh, Nick went on to do other things. In fact, now he's the concierge of a five star hotel in Melbourne, and uh, I know Blackwell eventually tracked Nick Phillips down and uh, and got those acetates and the dats of those um, of that session, of which I believe there's about forty five minutes worth of music on there. What's also amazing about the uh, uh, about that day was, you know, um, Nick and his bands uh, rehearsed at Corduroy, so there was um, a, a wonderful supply of kind of like well used but vintage equipment, you know, keyboards, basses, nice old valve amps. But on the song, the Headcoatees song, it's got keyboards. It's got guitar, it's got vocals, and I know that Jack had to apply himself to do all three, but fit within the confines of what Harry was doing as well. And as we well know, this is something that he knows how to do, and, and you know they subsequently do this at, at, at Third Man. Now, I'm not sure if they do seven inches, but you know, obviously they do their live to acetate LP sessions. And I know there's a clock on the wall, so you got you got to fit within certain time parameters. But um, you know, Jack was Jack was uh, more than uh, knowledgeable of this. But I don't think, yeah, I think Harry Harry didn't expect as much feedback from someone he was recording as what he got from Jack. So that's what happened on 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 that day. <laughs> But what really interested Jack was that earlier, a go-go, when it was run by um, a gentleman by the name of Bruce Milne, who's kind of like a, um, a fantastic purveyor of rock and roll in Melbourne, and um, he got a go-go to put out a gory single, and Jack was able, I believe, to get, you know, it was a, it was a numbered edition of it, but he was able to get number one of that gory single which he um, proudly took back to Detroit. And, you know, I think Blackwell salivated for the next five years um, over Jack being able to find a, a copy of that. But, you know, Ogogo had it and gave it to him. Another thing that they did, and they might have done earlier on that Wednesday, and I didn't go to it, but remembering in New Zealand, uh, we were taking them to the Kiwi house. They'd seen... The um, the tunnels in Devonport, Jack and Meg wanted to go and see some marsupials and in particular koalas at this um, uh, wildlife sanctuary. It's a famous one in Melbourne called uh, Hillsville. I didn't go, but I know that Jack and Meg went, Long Gone John went, Long Gone John's friend, whose name escapes me, but they all went. And I remember Meg coming back with the photos of them holding koalas, because that's what you do, you get the, you know a nice little Polaroid to bring back. But Meg was shocked at the sound that a female koala makes when she's mating. And I've heard the sound, and it's hideous, it's horrible. And so that became like a you know a little bit of a, of a running joke for a while. It's kind of like it's a blood curdling. <laughs> 
or, or or something similar. It does not sound pleasurable. Yeah, but that's how um, that's how koalas um, re- reproduce. That's all we've got for this bonus episode of Striped: The Story of the White Stripes. Want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production assistance from Melissa Locker, Mark Charles, and Kojin Tashiro. Biggest thanks of all, though, goes to the White Stripes themselves, Jack and Meg White, because without them, none of this would be possible. Oh, and we've also put together companion playlists for seasons one and two of Striped, so you can hear a lot of the bands and songs mentioned in the show, including this bonus episode, and maybe, just maybe, discover your next big musical obsession. You can find those playlists on your preferred streaming platform or by perusing the Third Man social channels. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.